First of all, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Himachi. Thank you, Doug, for a very kind introduction. I have a confession, actually. I don't. I forgot what I was supposed to speak about. <laughs> Somebody mentioned it to me a long time back, and I've been traveling. I just landed about an hour ago from Madurai, and I've already spoken three times this morning. So I'm a bit confused. So, uh, if you tell me what. What is of interest? I'll I'll try and speak. So. so the title is politics of inclusive development, but in terms okay. of possibly helpful, it will just talk about like how to bring that professional rigor into politics. Because really, the scale, the without forgetting the people that we are trying to serve, we can just start with the Okay. Um, I think it's worth topic uh, touching the original topic as well. So why don't I start with that? Um, I've been, I think, speaking maybe like two, three times a week on various forums. Um, and so, you know, it helps you when you have to talk and uh, good or bad, I don't have the time to prepare. So whenever I get a chance to talk, I talk, uh, you know, from here and from here. And you keep talking often enough and it kind of clarifies things for you. Um, so what I've said very recently multiple times is uh, politics is politics, administration is administration. These are two completely different things, unfortunately. Uh, the design of democracy makes a fundamental assumption. It assumes that those who are good enough to get elected or, you know, um, what do you say, popular enough to get elected are also inherently competent enough to run a government. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true at all. I'm not sure it ever was true. And uh, it is becoming exceedingly uh, kind of not true. If you look at the skills that are required to be given a seat in a major party and uh, to win an election, let's say on my experience in Tamil Nadu, those skills have very little overlap, if any, with the skills required to be a good legislator, let alone a good minister. And then being a good minister is much, much harder than being a good legislator. So somewhere in the fundamental construct, we have the disconnect. And, uh, you know, if you take that to the next step, you say, um, what are the skills required uh, to be a good administrator. Maybe we can work backwards from that. Maybe we have a U.S. type model where once somebody wins election as president, they get to appoint whoever they want uh, as the cabinet, irrespective of whether they got elected or not. But at least in India, I'm not sure about the U.S., though I lived there for 20 years, but in India we have a fundamental problem without naming names. If you look at the members of the cabinet, particularly in this government, but also in the UPA government, those who come through the kind of, uh, uh, you know, indirect election route, like the Rajya Sabha, they have some profound disconnect with the people. And that's not healthy for democracy either. You know, uh, as much as I say that professional uh, skills understanding of systems, administrative capability is important to be 
uh, a minister or to the government. Much, much more important than all that is a connect with the people. Uh, if you have an understanding of their lives, if you if you have empathy, if you have compassion, and if you tailor your actions based on your understanding of the world, that is a much more effective and, and consequential kind of outcome. Now, maybe we need a bit of all. Maybe we need a few more more things who are so sophisticated and so uh, clear in policy making that it doesn't matter that they want elected. And then we need a few, you know, Lalu Yadavs who are so connected to the people that it doesn't matter what he does or doesn't know about administration, uh, he's going to get things done. And he understands the zeitgeist. So, you know, he has impact. But broadly speaking, we have this disconnect. And uh, why I bring this up is I say, most of us are playing on the edges. You know, if you look at uh, the consequences of policy decisions or the outcomes relative to you know the date in which the decision was making you know, was taken. There's this huge gap, right? I mean, outcomes. Uh, it's like the markets. I, I spent a lot of time in the markets. The markets go up. The markets go down. Everybody tries to interpret why the markets are going up or why they're going down. But at the core, we know that there are so many variables that drive markets that we are all just guessing. I mean, we have, some are more educated guesses than others. Some are better. Uh, retrospective kind of, uh, you know, fitted solutions and others. But at the end of the day, hundreds of variables determine outcomes and we control or, you know, we control a few and we understand a few more. And that's all there is. So if you look at policy, it's even worse because the complexity of the system is so high that the ability to do cause and effect uh, analysis is almost zero. Except in rare cases where you have, you know, unique individuals who make kind of very, very, uh, what can I say, uh, six sigma away from the norm decisions. Like an individual takes it upon himself that he understands economics and will call, you know, uh, demonetization in a few hours. Those are very easy to analyze the consequences of. But most people don't make decisions like that. Most people don't with advisors of three or five, make earth-shattering decisions. So if it's a normal democratic process where you have to go through, you know, the inputs and the discussions and the committees of the Lok Sabha and then, you know, many cabinet meetings, and by the time you get a vote, it will come. First of all, there may be a gap between the original intent and the final law for the bill. And second, by the time the implications or consequences of that action are really understood, it may be diluted or it may be affected by how it does other things that you want to understand. So we have a system where we think we're going to achieve some outcome and we think we're going to uh, you know, get some benefit. And so we legislate or design policy or design schemes uh, to achieve that outcome. There are structural limitations in getting that done. And then there are practical limitations like uh, how much of the money actually gets spent for the purpose we wanted and how much of it gets taken out in uh, rent-seeking and inefficiency and failure. 
every year the CAG report points out hundreds of cases where the money has not been spent as it was intended, either not spent at all, or misspent, or mis uh, what can we say accounted for, uh, wrongly accounted for. So uh, the bad news is that most of the time we're kind of groping in the dark. We think we know what we're doing. We, we act as if we do. But in fact, at a very technical, scientific, uh, rigorous analysis, you'd be hard-pressed to uh, kind of come out with a good cause effect or a, this resulted in that. What you can do, however, is look at things over the long term. And uh, if you look, you know, earlier today I was at a function in, uh, in Madurai where somebody talked about a a speech that Steve Jobs had given at uh, Stanford about connecting the dots, about looking at outcomes and then looking back and trying to figure out how did we arrive at this place. So if we do a connect the dots exercise, then it's very clear that Tamil Nadu in particular and South India, a broader context, had a very interesting and, and divergent kind of political philosophy right from the 1920s. Um, the 1920 uh, Montague, 1919 Montague Chelmsford reforms, you might, uh, some of you may know, was the second attempt of at trying to stave off full independence. The first one was in the late 1880s or the 1890s, was called the Monumental Reforms, to try and give Indians a bit of a voice in uh, administration. And it didn't, didn't amount to much, that didn't pacify uh, the independence movement. So the second uh, attempt was the Montague Chelmsford reforms, and that called for diarchy or, or two-level government. The British would run the kind of higher-level government, keeping all the important topics like revenue, home, you know, all of those things. And then they would give the social uh, sectors to the uh, Indians, uh, elected Indians, and those were like public works, education. Uh, all the cultural things, etc. And so in Dayaki, the Justice Party, which, uh, of course, I have a conflict of interest because my great-grand-uncle, uh, my great-grandfather died young. My great-grand-uncle, who raised all of us effectively as the head of the joint family, was one of the founding charter subscribers of something called the South Indian Liberal Federation, which became the Justice Party. And so they had a very clear view that uh, Societal reform was as important, maybe even more important than independence. So when they participated in the process in the 1930 election, the Congress Party boycotted those elections. So they basically swept apart. And uh, in the space of six or seven years, they laid the seeds for what I would consider are the profound differences that uh, make Tamil Nadu the unique today. That is, in the in the space of six or seven years, they did. Uh, the right to vote for women, so 50% of the population has been disenfranchised for enfranchised. Uh, compulsory elementary education for boys and girls, compulsory education. When they couldn't enforce compulsory education because violation rates were 60-70%, and Madras Corporation, they started feeding the kids as a way of enticing poor kids to come to school. So they started the first free food program. Uh, in 1931. 
they did a lot of analyses that showed that uh, jobs were very tightly controlled by the upper caste in general and the brown community in particular. And using those statistics, they passed for what was called the communal geo, which was job reservation based on the percentage of the population. Whatever your community was of the total population, that, that percentage of job in the public works department, in the revenue administration, in the judicial service, in the legislative assembly, were reserved for you. And uh, they did a whole, uh, you know, they removed, for example, uh, I spoke earlier today at a, at a very big hospital that was hosting the annual uh, Indian Association of Toxicology or something, which is your name, or some subset of medicine in the emergency department. And uh, the, the chairman of the hospital said, neither me nor my father who founded this hospital would have existed as doctors and we wouldn't have this uh, hospital if there wasn't a Dravidian movement. Because what the Dravidian movement did in 1923 was remove Sanskrit as a prerequisite to study medicine. Till then you had to show Sanskrit proficiency to get admission to medical college. So only when that was removed, uh, people who were not otherwise uh, what can I say, with easy access to Sanskrit training, could become doctors. So, you know, if, if, if I was to put the whole package together and call it something today, I would call it inclusive growth, what my chief minister keeps repeating. We want every section of the society to participate in this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the questions will be more interesting, so I don't want to speak for too long, but I will just say that if you take a broad basket of indicators, that is from per capita income, average education, number of doctors per thousand people, access to healthcare, therefore the inverse, which is low uh, infant mortality, low maternal mortality, low malnutrition, um, Number of toilets per people, uh, number of uh, community halls per people, you know, per, 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 per uh, town. If, if you take any broad measure that includes human development plus social development plus economic development, then there is no large state that is within sniffing distance of Tamil Nadu. Tamil Nadu stands all along by itself. And I'll give you the nearest contrast. If you compare Gujarat, and Gujarat has about 10,000 rupees per person, uh, per capita income, higher than Tamil It is a huge success story economically. In the last 10 years, they have zoomed past uh, Tamil from a much lower level. That's the economic success story. But if you look at uh, two other indicators, one, the Gini coefficient. What is the extent of spread of poor to wealthy? Gujarat is much, much worse than Tamil Nadu. If you look at the percentage of girls below 15 that are in school, it's almost 100% in Tamil Nadu. It's only about 80% in Gujarat. If you look at the number of doctors per thousand residents, it's almost four in Tamil Nadu. That's higher than in the United States. And it's probably one doctor for every 2,500 to 3,000 people in Gujarat. So economic growth can come in multiple ways. It doesn't always come inclusive. Economic growth can come with great disparity as well. So I would say, broadly, um, we are a different uh, breed uh, from our uh, inception 
it has always been about empowerment. Now there may be neg- negative consequences, nothing comes free. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. But uh, the inclusive growth model has lasted uh, effectively 100 years. All but 30 years, Tamil Nadu, its predecessor, Madras State, its predecessor, Madras Presidency, were governed by parties that at least professed to adhere to the South Indian Liberal Federation's value system. The 30 years in between, it was administered by various Congress governments between 1937 and 1967. In those 30 years, the Congress of Madras Presidency and Madras State actually hewed closer to the Justice Party Dravidian value system than they did to the rest of India's Congress. For example, this emphasis on education was doubled down by the Congress government, uh, by Kamraj. He actually invested a lot more in education than in free food. Even something like democratization of religion. What the Justice Party did after multiple attempts was uh, nationalize the kings and, and emperor's temples. So they thought that when the uh, Congress came 10 years later, they would uh, denationalize them. Not only did they not denationalize them, they went even more aggressively. Uh, Rajaji signed the Dalit Temple Entry Act and enforced the uh, you know full access all the way to the uh, inner sanctum sector for Dalits. Uh, my grand uncle uh, Bakar Chalam was a Congress then HRC minister, then chief minister, was the one who passed the law that uh, the prayers, the archanes, could be said in Tamil so that people could understand what was being said in the temple. So. The Congress Party's policies adhered much more closely to the Dravidian values in, in Madras presidency in Madras state. And so I think, um, you know, blips will come and go. I've been a critic in five years as an opposition MLA about the financial mismanagement and the administrative problems. After all of that, uh, Tamil Nadu's GDP has almost tripled in 10 years. It could be a lot better, but it's still See, when you build up advantages over 50, 60, 80, 100 years, those things are not erasable or losable in 5 years or 10 years. And if you don't have them, then it's not fixable in 5 years or 10 years. I guess that's the overarching theme I'm trying to say. If you get the fundamentals right and you get it right long enough, then that's a sustainable kind of uh, advantage. And if you don't get the fundamentals right, Everything else you do, you pump in money. And I've had this discussion with Mr. N. K. Singh when he came as the Finance Commission Chairman. He said the, the goal of the Finance Commission was to do devolution, which is take the integrated tax money of India and split it up both vertically, the union to the states, and horizontally between the states under three principles. Transparency, equity, and efficiency. And uh, I said transparency, let's not argue, because everybody's for transparency. What's the definition of equity and what's the definition of efficiency? These are not easily definable terms. So I said, let me propose that equity means that there should be some uh, kind of Correlation, of course, the poorer should get more and the richer should get less and therefore there should be net transfers from the rich to the poor. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But beyond that, there should be some 
kind of incentive for performance. If I achieve the goals that you ask me to, I mean, and they they have all these metrics, right? They say for achieving population control, for achieving this uh, revenue gap closure, all this. But in fact, you have not done a good job. You meaning not Mr. Singh, but the last 15 finance commission. And if efficiency is to be the basis, I said anywhere else in the world you look, Europe, China, US. Efficiency means that when you transfer net funds from the well-off to the less well-off, that transfer should reduce the gap, should lower the gap. That's the whole point of transfers. I take money from the rich and give it to the poor. Government does that all the time. It does that within a district. It does that within a state. It does that within a federal country. And aid agencies do that around the world. But the effect of that is supposed to be that you have less inequality, greater convergence. Fifteen finance commissions, we're keeping on transferring greater and greater amounts and we're keeping on getting not just not convergence, but accelerating divergence. Right? The best to the worst used to be two is to one, let's say, in uh, at independence. So this probably four is to one before the reforms. Now sometimes it's ten is to one within the same country, two different states. And the transfers have gotten more and more aggressive. At one point in Tamil Nadu, if we gave in one rupee of taxes to the union, we got back 75 percent. Then it was 60, then it was 50, now it's 35. And yet, we are going faster and somebody else is not going faster. Something is structurally wrong. So I said to him, why don't you, instead of incentivizing all these post hoc measures, like what is your per capita GDP and all, which you cannot control anyway, why don't you say that those who get 100% of girls into school will get additional money? Those who have participation of women in the workforce will get it. Because we know, I mean, that's about the first indicator that you have progress is to get equal rights and equal opportunities to 50% of the population. So, I mean, he didn't particularly take it. But, you know, this is the overarching lesson that I would say I take from this is that you have to do the fundamental things right, and you have to do them right long enough. And if you do that, then nothing else matters. And if you don't do that, then everything else cannot save you. You're still going to be stuck in a rut and you're just fixing, you know, today's firefighting and tomorrow's band-aid. I don't know if that covered what you expected, but uh, maybe I should just stop and take questions.
and I specifically wanted to know if there is a way for us to un- collaborate with Tamil Nadu government in terms of data integration because we're collecting a lot of grassroots data on citizens and the socioeconomic factors and what else means that they are entitled to. So, yeah, one last question there. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the old adage is that uh, you, know, you can't improve or understand what you don't measure applies uh, very, very clearly. Uh, as I say to a lot of my colleagues, there's a reason stuff is in the textbooks. It's been proven right you know, multiple times. That's why it's in the textbooks. So, data is crucial. And again, most governments are not designed. Actually, I take the back. The Constitution was very foresight, was very high foresight, designed a pretty good system at the union level, not so much at the state level. Unfortunately, at the union level, you know, it once used to be the pride of the country, but now for various reasons, I know this seem like I'm descending into politics. But the net result is that we don't do a lot of data gathering. In fact, in many cases, data has been suppressed. So we don't really know what's happening. In some cases, so much so that we have had to step up to the plate and start doing additional data collection ourselves. Um, to or to overcome the lack of data that used to be supplied to us before from the government. But uh, data is a bit of a tricky thing. Right? I mean, first to understand what it is you need is uh, not a trivial thing. Second, to uh, get some level of purity is uh, is quite hard. And then because of the scale of our country. You can only do sampling. You can't do, it's very hard to do universal data, at least it used to be. Uh, thankfully, I think the technology is getting so good and we've gone from kind of, uh, you know, um, when I was a PhD student in psychology, the rule was that unless you have a hypothesis based on existing theory and, um, you know, kind of extension, Anything you find statistically is irrelevant. It's just random. It's no longer cause and effect unless you asked for it first. But now, you know, in the advent of big data, we're capturing more data than we ever thought possible, and you can start deciphering patterns and outcomes that, uh, if not quite uh, cause and effect relationship, at least give you grounds to, to dig a bit further and get better insight. And now with all the kind of deep tech and the IoT and all that, you can collect data so many ways, so many places. I think we are only in the nascent stages, at least as a state government. We have stepped up a lot. In the last six months, we have probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 people dedicated to doing nothing but data. Uh, we call it the data purity project. We're just integrating all the data from all the different sources. And it has been immensely helpful to us. Uh, we found, for example, tens of thousands of people being uh, given old age pensions who were listed in the civil register as expired. And we know the civil register is less than comprehensive or accurate, particularly after COVID. There's a big gap between true fatalities and when they appear in the civil register. And that's in a state like Tamil Nadu. Were I to go to a less developed state, that gap is even wider. Um, when we cross-referenced the loan data from multiple cooperative societies. We found almost 65% of all the loans that we thought were eligible for waiver were actually not. We found fraud of enormous proportion. So, 
I think data is the key, right? There's I think the economist like you know, some like in the last three, four years data cover said data is the new oil. There's that much value in it. Uh, we collect some, we need to collect a lot more. Uh, some of it also starts to um, merge on uh, intrusions into the lives of people in ways the state should not. So, for example, yesterday I was in Madurai, I couldn't make it, I had some other commitments, but my uh, economic advisor and friend, Raghuram Rajan, is in Chennai. And uh, he spoke at an event yesterday. And he said, there are some things the RBI just should not be able to see, in his opinion, because it's just too much intrusion into people's lives. So, I think it's a balance. Uh, of course, we're happy to collaborate with whoever, I mean, uh, collaboration. I mean, what's the difference between collaboration and getting it independently? If I get it independently at some level, I have greater comfort that it hasn't been skewed or rigged or biased by government officials. If I collaborate, it probably makes it a bit easier for you to get the data rather than do it yourself. You know, not just funding, but opening doors and preventing problems and so forth. It's a fine balance. So I think, you know, case by case, we make that decision. Hello, sir. Jayadim. My name is Arunasri. I'm from Telangana. <coughs> I'm working as a, a, a research associate. Um, I'm doing a project at Transgender Community and I'm working with Bahadur Samash Party in Hyderabad and Telangana. My question is how to improve citizens' quality of life? And what is your government plans and educational system and the health department? Thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, I'm not the chief minister, I'm not the party chief. Uh, you know, I have some concerns. But uh, 2016 was the centenary year of the Justice Party, so the SILS formation was formed on the 30th, 1960. So just out of my own interest, I wrote an article, and then the, the then party president, Kalinga, he liked it so much that he published it on the front page of the Mursuli, and then uh, which is a party newspaper, and then had, uh, had almost all the people who spoke at the centenary celebration, which our current chief minister always referenced that article. But in that article, I said. Because of my unique uh, history, because you know I'm the fourth generation of my family in the movement, and because at least some of my forefathers left behind a lot of uh, paperwork, a lot of writing, a lot of uh, coverage in the press and all that, I said, if you look back to where we started, some things we have done reasonably well. You know, we have improved a lot of uh, the average citizen. You know, all the statistics I cited, we have improved. Uh, the social equity for the backward classes, we have done far less for the oppressed classes. Uh, better than zero, but still a long way to go. But maybe uh, if we compare that to the economic outcomes, those have not been so good. You know, we have achieved a lot more on the social dimension, imperfect as that may be. But people's lives have not improved that much. If you compare us to like the really, uh, you know, Good case studies, either a small state like Singapore that did 100x per capita in 50 years, or you take a big country like China that did, you know, 10x or 15x or 20x in 20 years, 30 years. Then we have not done that much. Now, you know, that's a broader India problem. It's not only a Tamil problem. 
But I had proposed back then, this is uh, November of 2016, I said maybe one of our goals should be to provide people, uh, restate our goals, not just about social justice, but it's about a life of dignity. And a life of dignity means that, you know, you open the tap in your house and look at what everybody has a you know, roof over their head, some minimum per person square foot house. Uh, you have a toilet with, uh, you know, uh, flushing facilities. You live in a place that's free of garbage uh, outside on the streets or open sewers. You know, what, what, what an advanced country considers uh, kind of a baseline, you know. A life of dignity. I didn't talk about rich, poor, you know, washing machine, all that. I just said life of dignity, which really goes down to the basics, right? Uh, it's not just about uh, food, clothing, shelter. It's about uh, hygiene. It's about uh, clean environment. It's about uh, access to private toilets. It's about uh, you know, safe roads and streets, those kinds of things. And I, I, I put a disclaimer and I listed four or five things and I put a disclaimer and I said for a guy who came to politics six months ago, which is what I did, I was gone for 30 years overseas and I came back uh, and ran for election almost immediately. So I said for a guy who came to politics in April, November is, yeah, I'm not qualified to say what the party's role should be, but these are just suggestions for, for debate. So I agree. I think, uh, you know, um, we should set ourselves some benchmark because growth is too broad a notion. You, know, you can achieve uh, mathematical outcomes many ways. And uh, even inclusive growth is, is still a concept. It's not uh, concrete. So I, for one, would say that we should set ourselves some kinds of concrete goals about where the lowest common denominator is, only then we know that we've really lifted the bottom of the pyramid. But, um, but you know, I'm not that senior in the party. So. Thank you, sir. My name is Vandana, I'm from Bihar. So, you spoke about uh, social inclusion and social. Uh, Justice, how it is important, uh, not just for economic growth, but for inclusive development. These indicators are important. And we gave example of Gujarat, which is uh, economically very well off state, but social indicators are quite low. So, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, for example, in Bihar, politics has been always around social justice and social inclusion, but the state is one of the worst performing. But one is the one who was performing. So, uh, my what are your passing thoughts on that? How to balance that and uh, economic growth, balancing economic growth and social inclusion? Yeah, I mean, listen, social inclusion cannot just be a slogan. Nothing can be a slogan. Or if it's a slogan, then it's only a slogan. Okay? I mean, uh, we can all do slogan here. Yeah, some better than others. To me, BR is the, the kind of shock value case study, right? I mean, uh, I did some research back in 2017 when GST was coming in about the lack or the loss of independence on taxation that states would suffer as a consequence of GST. And for that, I did some work with some uh, 
fellow uh, with some friends and who had access to think tank data, which I didn't have at the time. And the think tank data was very clear. Uh, I don't know if it's still valid now, but back in 2015 or 16, the data suggested that the average Tamil citizen was a woman, yeah, slightly above 50% women in the population, 31 years old, high school graduate, uh, per capita income of 2 lakh rupees or something, uh, with the expected total fertility in her lifetime of 1.6 children. In Bihar, the average citizen was a male. Uh, you know, it's like skewed quite badly, 10 to 9. 19 years old. Per capita income, 40,000 or 45,000. Total fertility rate for the women was 3 point something. And here's where I say there's no social justice. The average education was elementary school dropout. Elementary school dropout. If you have not taken the average person past fifth class pass, there has been no social justice. Social justice cannot just be something you talk because you want to get votes and you say, you know, I'm, I'm doing caste baseball. The first indication of social justice is that you must have the graduation rates and uh, you know qualifying into government jobs and to medical colleges coming from all communities and that the ratio should be roughly the same because you, know, you can't erase thousands of years of oppression in hundred years of reservation. But uh, we try really hard to do that. Uh, there is no social justice in Bihar. I can't. I mean, the statistics don't tell me there's any social. It's just talk. Right? Only outcomes tell you whether you have achieved social justice. So not only is there no economic growth, there is no social justice whatsoever. So myself, Mushir Siddiqui, and I am from Kanpur, Uttar Pradesh. As I was going through your profile, and I have seen that you were the part of the Legislative Assembly in 2016 government and 2021 government. So my question is that in 2016 we had a DMP government over here, and now we have a DMP government, which is your party. So, uh, basically, on uh, when it comes to distribution of the funds for uh, the government for different schemes, so is there any bias when you are sitting in the government and you are, when you are sitting against the government? So, that's what my question is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, let me uh, play a bit of devil's advocate here. I would say that at least the professed values of the ADFK, are not that different from the DMK. In fact, if you look, at least till the lady was alive, uh, the bulk of debates in the assembly and on the street in the in the political platform was not that you are for black and I am for white, or that you know uh, you are for the rich and I am for the poor. The bulk of the debates were. We are all for the same thing. How much of it did you do and how much did I do? You know, who fought for reservation harder? Who won the case in the Supreme Court? Who fought against NEET uh, harder? Who fought for Jallikattu harder? The values were the same. It was only a question of, uh, you know, partly personality politics and partly kind of uh, execution capability. I'm better than you, you're better than me, uh, kind of uh, debate. After the lady went, then things change quite a bit. And I'll caveat everything I say with 
you know, she had many, many strengths. I've been on record from the day she passed. I went on a public TV show and talked a lot about the strength she brought. But she had one uh, major negative, and that is that she was paranoid because of, you know, the difficulty she's had in her life and how she arrived where she arrived. She was afraid that she would be toppled or there would be some kind of conspiracy against her. And so she kept everybody uh, on their toes. You know, she changed ministers like you and I, you know, changed clothes. She, she, she rotated party posts and all that stuff. So she kept everybody so paranoid that they were afraid to even communicate. You know, they, would, they couldn't be seen talking to somebody in the DMK or in the Congress or whatever. Why I bring that up is after she passed, for all the other negatives that happened, and, and a lot happened, like it, I, I've said it on record multiple places, I'm going to say it again as a deep criticism. But I, I uh, alleviate my criticism by saying it is not intended as personal criticism, because after she passed, the natural camaraderie that exists between politicians and all of the same community or language or uh, you know, Dravidian uh, stock as we see ourselves, uh, reasserted itself. So, I, when I say these things, I don't mean it as a personal attack. The politics has been relatively decent here. In five years in the assembly, not once was, uh, did anybody heckle me when I spoke. We had uh, fiery debates, but they always gave me great respect. Uh, in many ways, the opposition, uh, that is the ruling party ministers and members, appreciated my contribution more because there was no kind of internecine uh, envy or anything like that. And when I asked for things, they got done, or at least they got committed, uh, they got done a lot. So, having said that, they were all not bad human beings as human beings. I say that the last six, seven years, the main problem was not that they um, had different values or different skills. It was like a Headless beast. You know, I've said it in Tamil. Talayilla valgal kalgal. It's like you took out the head and the legs and the tails were wagging and moving by themselves. So there was no cohesive policy. There was no uh, kind of strategy. There was no vision. They were used to being, you know, kind of obsequious. You, you, you know, you all remember how they used to bend, you know. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you a funny incident. When when uh, the swearing in happened, you might know that the 16 elections we lost by less than 1% of the vote. So we did a lot of tactical things wrong. But till then, the Tamil public had been, you know, uh, ADMK, DMK, ADMK, DMK for 30 years. And then that election, we did something slightly wrong and we lost. And so we went to the swearing-in ceremony, which itself was a big break from the past. The, the antagonism at personality level had been such that you wouldn't attend their function, they wouldn't attend yours. So we went for the swearing-in ceremony, they did not anticipate us coming. And because they did not anticipate us coming, they put us in the sixth row, I mean, just for, for protocol, they had left some seats open. And it, they didn't mean to insult us, if they knew we were coming, they would have put us in the front. But, you know, they didn't think we would come, because that would be the history of that year. Anyway, we sat in the back row, and then all of a sudden, all the ministers waiting for swearing in just got up and bent, like 90 degrees to usual. And then nothing happened for like five or eight minutes, nothing happened. They just stayed bent for five or eight minutes. Because they had gotten word that a car had entered the compound. 
as soon as they got word that the car had entered the compound, they immediately stood up and went. Right. So she had kind of, uh, uh, I won't say she asked for it, but everybody wants to prove they are more loyal than the king. So the culture had descended to the point where these, you know, gestures of obsequious kind of uh, fealty uh, had become uh, de rigueur. So I was, I happened to be sitting right behind my chief minister, now chief minister, my then opposition party leader, and I was saying, look at all these clowns, look at them, you know, five minutes, eight minutes, we say, we're from the self-respect movement, you know, we say all these things, look at these guys. And then the ceremony finished. And then on the way out, I said to him, I said, Anna, actually, I just realized something. Using these jokers, she beat us. <laughs> what was me <maybe? laughs> So, sometimes you have to, you know, realize that it's not like we are that far apart and we're all from the same place. So, I would say it's just the last seven, eight years, it's not been that they had bad policy. Is that they had a very limited ambition. They wanted to serve out five years and make as much money as they could. Many politicians make money. I'm not particularly accused of that. I mean, there were one or two extreme examples. People like the local administration minister. I mean, uh, you know, he should get like the award for blatant and uh, shameless corruption in the history of Tamil Nadu. Right? Those are unique cases. But for the most part, they had limited ambition. They wanted to serve out five years and make their money and go. And so, you know, they did as little as possible to rock the boat. They did as much as possible to keep the government in Delhi happy. And because of that, we got a lot of problems that we inherited. Because of that, the finances slipped. Because independent of whether it was DMK or ADMK, between 2003, the adoption of the FRBM Act and the FRA Act in Tamil Nadu, until 2014, the finances were at even keep. Between 2014 and 2021 is when our problems really... Nobody knew what they were doing, right? I mean, um, listen, uh, I processed about 2,000-something files after I became minister. And I've evolved the system, and it's completely, completely loaded on a computer, and I have people designated to read all the nuances, and then, you know, they tell me what it is, and I, I cross-reference, and if what they say and what I read is the same, and it seems okay, I sign it, and if not, I push it back, and... You know, I pushed back uh, a lot of files, uh, not like 50%, but maybe 20%. And some of them are profound policy implications, right? Like, uh, uh, I got a file saying there's some 99-year uh, lease on like a thousand pound crore piece of property. I said, simply no. Government of Tamil Nadu will not, you know, go into 99-year leases on property. We don't know what's going to happen to it today. We think it's going for a good cause. 99 years is five generations. I'm not signing these papers, you know, effectively, never. Uh, so there are there are important files, and if you don't realize what you're signing, sometimes you, you sign things that end up with profound implications. But it is causing a lot of stir in the secretary, because it has been a long time since there was a finance minister who actually read the file before signing. Right? So people just sign files. Now we've got a problem, because... Last year, for example, they have signed administrative sanction for some 20,000 crores more in one department than the allocated budget. Now, the computer only knows that if something is given administrative sanction, when the bill comes, it should be paid. But it also knows that there's only so much money allocated to this department. So it doesn't know which was a project that we preferred, didn't prefer, that was last government, this government. Whoever brings the bill first gets paid till there's money, and then it just stops paying. 
So if you have 20,000 crores of pent-up administrative sanctions for which we have not made any allocation, then the whole system breaks down. Okay? So it is this kind of, you know, unthinking uh, administration that I criticize and I continue to criticize. It's not that they were particularly bad people or, you know, particularly uh, other than one or two exceptions. They were not particularly, you know, even off the normal political kind of morality. Uh, but the consequences are really bad. So the lack of leadership affects you a lot. I mean, that's one of the lessons you take from this is that, uh, you know, you decide which is the devil and the deep blue sea. Do you want a complete lack of leadership and lack of direction and then you just like, stagger down some rabbit hole or do you want a really you know uncompassionate leader who makes a lot of kind of strange decisions and causes immediate problems that they're both bad off the quality of democracy increases as you go down the level of government so you know when you sit in delhi or washington or beijing you're very far removed from the people right in Tamil Nadu, the average MP represents around one and a half million people, it's like two million people. Then at the MLA level, you know, in UP, it's probably like uh, three or three and a half black people, and Tamil Nadu is two and a half or two and three quarter black So at some level, uh, it is a notion, it is a concept. It is partly the party, partly the way, partly the person, etc. And there's no way that even if Excuse me, I have a really sophisticated communication system. There's no way that everybody expects to reach me. Now, that's the reason that we have designed democracy in such a way, at least in India, where the core requirements, the, the you know, uh, water and sewage and uh, garbage and road and light and uh, all the stuff is delegated to the local body. It's delegated to the corporation of Madurai rather than to the MLA or the MP. We're supposed to be legislators. We're supposed to be setting policy, arguing about allocations in the budget, etc. So what we are doing is abstract work. It's, it's a level removed from the people. I think the, the direct local uh, bodies are the ones that really are at the cutting edge of democracy. And so, you know, all along, at least in the Dravidian movement, the value of these levels has been very high. I'm not saying we're really good, but we are better than most. The one place that's really good, for example, is Kerala. In Kerala, uh, if you ask a traditional party politician, they would rather be um, a village chairman than an MLA. An MLA doesn't really have that much power in any even if you're ruling party MLA, let alone opposition. Um, so, you know, uh, our principles, we start with this notion of self-respect. I mean, we go from self-respect and we say, since I have self-respect and since I live in a democracy, I should have some right to self-determination, what is good for me or not good for me. And then that goes to local self-governance. So for every hundred or five hundred or thousand or two thousand people, I should have an elected representative who is equipped to deal with my problems. Some of your problems are structural. India is about the only large country where uh, so much power is so far away from the people. Right? If you take America, which Raghu was talking about in the speech yesterday, the local the mayor and the local council appoint the police. So the police are accountable to them. 
the local uh, school board elected by the people sets the syllabus and hires the teachers. So the teachers are accountable to them. Here, either it's coming from Chennai or from Delhi, you know, this uh, uh, the funds and the diktats and all that. Why do they care about what the locals think? So you have to make uh, uh, democracy accountable. And the more you devolve authority and money, the local bodies, the more you're likely to get outcome because you can't hide from your voters, right? You live in the same place and you have to see them every day. Uh, you know, there's no requirement even that I have to live in my costumes. In fact, I don't live in my costumes. My costumes in Madurai Central. I asked for sentimental reasons and my family's history with the temple and all that. I actually live in Madurai North. I don't live in Central. And that's constitutionally okay. There's no requirement. So, I think the longer term Solution has to be, though we call it federalism, which we say first devolve power from the union to the states. It has to be that then the states devolve to the uh, local bodies, to the villages, to the panchayats, to the union district unions, to the corporations, to the municipalities. We do better than many. We don't. We are not the best in the country, but we have a state finance commission underway right now. And so, as the kind of uh, home department for that under planning and development, uh, which is also one of the portfolios I have. I uh, spoke to the chairman when we extended the term for COVID. They, did, they couldn't get their report out in, in time. We extended their term. And when we extended their term, I gave him my speech to Mr. N. K. Singh and, uh, and the 15th Finance Commission. I said, these principles you apply in devolving from the uh, state to the local bodies, right? Uh, incentivization, accountability, transparency, therefore greater devolution. Because what we fear is the reverse. You know, what uh, there was a famous economist um, at Uranda NIPFP in Delhi, National Institute for Financial Policy and Planning. Um, and I think he said something like everybody wants. Uh, devolution up to their level of power. Right? Like the states want it from the union, but don't want to give it to the thing. Uh, you know, our prime minister, when he was a the chief minister, was the greatest champion of devolution. Now he's over there and concentrating. So some of that is just this political disease, right? Uh, where I stand on the issues depends on where I sit in the house or in the government. But some of it is, I think, uh, uh, the genuine concern that if you Give money down to hundreds of places without systems and checks and balances. That the amount of malfeasance that can happen also now is multiplied by a factor of 10 or 50 or 100. How do we keep a check on that? Right? So part of that I think is better computerization, more online transactions, more audit, uh, more checks and balances and then devolution. So you give the money, give the power and keep a check through systems, not through human beings, because there's a limit, I can't go and check everything, but through system, systemic checks built in, and as we go to more online, uh, we can do that. But it's a very difficult problem, and I think, um, you know, um, the irony in, in, in most places, Certainly, I, I think that's true in large states like Maharashtra, Uttar Pradesh, to some extent, in Tamil Nadu. That we have too many employees where we don't need them. And we have too few where we need them. Right? So, if you look at the percentage of the workforce that is 
at the federal level, at the state level, at the local body level, in a place like US or even China, you'll find like 70% plus of the employees are at the local body level or government employees and much lower in, as you climb up. Here in, in India, it's the reverse. Early 20% of government employees are the local body, which is the cutting edge to the people. And 80% are, you know, very far away. So the system has some limitations. It's not, it's not just you. Uh, there has to be systemic improvement. Uh, but I think the only thing you can do now is at least communicate. I mean, therefore, let me put it another way. Forget village level, forget corporation or whatever. As an MLA, I refuse to give any uh, kind of, uh, what do you call it, uh, I refuse to, uh, what do you call it, I refuse to release a private manifesto. If elected, I will do this. I said, I don't know what I can do. I've never been MLA before. If elected, I'll apply my talent and be honest and, uh, you know, try to get you good outcomes. That's all I committed. First time. Because I didn't know whether I could deliver a commitment or not. Second time around, I said, I only get three commitments. I said, I'll make sure that the drinking water problem is fixed, which is a huge commitment, it's not a trivial commitment. I'll make sure that the integrated sewer scheme that's been going on for 14 years is completed. Again, another huge commitment. And I'll make sure that the temple uh, once in 12 year renovation that has been delayed will get done. Right? Now these itself are massive commitments, but I figured if you were ruling party and I was minister, then you know, that I had a chance of delivering. But I didn't go beyond that. I didn't give him micro commitments and all that. You know, uh, anybody can talk. You, know, you have to deliver or be held accountable. Right? That's part of the talk. Uh, thank you, sir, for talking to us today. I'm Anupya. I'm from West Bengal. Um, you've spoken a lot about big data, a lot about digitization. Often, data-backed companies use um, customer satisfaction scores or net promoter scores. Um, so, outside of poll, what are the real-time feedback indicators that governments can and do use to understand their success with the voter? Um, I was surprised. When I came to government, right, I assumed it was better than it really is. So both in terms of, I mean, forget about feedback, outward communication, both outward communication and then you have to get feedback. Both of these were practically non-existent. So, you know, just running front page ads in the Hindu and in, uh, you know, in TVs and all is not, is not communication. Or put another way. Compared to what we did as a political party for the election campaign, not even 5% of that the government was doing. So just based on my experience and my kind of, uh, you know, professional experience in that five years, I also run, I also set up and run at my leader's request or command the IT wing for the DMK. So whatever we had figured out how to do there, I'm now trying to bring some of that to the government of Nadu. Um, but it's very hard to, you see, governments have a different mindset, a different kind of cultural um, environment. So, at least in the early days, we'll end up doing a lot of outsourcing uh, with vendors and so forth, which is easy. Governments have a lot of money. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, these are... Nowadays, there are a lot of tools, so you can get actually like a very quick feedback from have you heard of the scheme to what do you think of its benefits to do you personally benefit? You know, you can do multiple levels of assessment 
uh, which will start soon. Thank you. Uh, I don't know how to pick. Uh, Dominic and Arpita, can you decide and tell me who wants to go? Thank you, Ma'am. Hello, sir. Um, yeah. My name is Arpita Bhatta, and I'm from Assam, currently working as the National Coordinator of NCI. Um, so, sir, I wanted to ask you about uh, that we see a sort of shift in the narrative of politics in some of the states in India where elections are becoming highly polarized or the entire definition of development does not include inclusive at all. And at the same time, we have a state like Tamil Nadu, which has high GDP growth and is also doing well uh, in the welfare front. It's doing well for the people as well. So how do you think can these other states sort of replicate this model? Or, or do you think that an understanding of the Dravidian principles on a pan-India level, we sort of help shape uh, a politics or shape uh, a narrative that includes uh, uh, inclusive growth or inclusive development, a mixture of both, like social and economic. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Dravidian movement happens to be something that I am very well read up on and uh, many people in Tamil have experienced. But in its... Uh, you know, and its foundation is not that different from many of the uh, kind of values and principles you see around the world. For example, if you look at Scandinavian countries, right, one of their stated goals is to keep the Gini coefficient low, is to very high tax the very rich and very, very uh, give fantastic benefits to everybody at the bottom of the pyramid, right? Like, uh, I think the average uh, benefits in Sweden are like one year of maternity and or paternity leave, free health, free education, you know, practically everything free, right? Because they get that much in taxation. So, um, or if you take a place like Singapore or Australia or New Zealand, where the minimum wage is like $20 an hour in Australia because they want to provide, the state should provide the quality of life for everybody. So, this notion of inclusive growth as we call it now, social justice as we called it back 100 years ago, uh, increasingly, the, the, the phrase social justice is creeping into the American lexicon. I lived there for 20 years. I never heard the phrase at all. In the last five, seven years, we've started hearing about social justice. And I mean, it's not that they had no, I mean, they, they, they had to fight racism. They had the whole civil rights movement. But the phrase social justice was not in the parlance of everyday America, at least the 20 years I lived there. So there's some commonality. You know, my own theory is that Governing and, and really achieving good outcomes at the, you know, at the people uh, edge is so hard and requires so, such thoughtfulness and so much professionalism and so much diligence and effort that it's a lot easier to sell this notion of, uh, if not me, who? Or the other guy is worse than I am or, you know, start kind of sloganeering and, and brand them as anti-national or, or somehow, you know, um, unfit for office or unfit for election. So, and this is not a India problem, right? This is uh, Turkey, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Erdogan, Turkey, uh, Turkey uh, far right in, uh, in uh, Europe, uh, Boris Johnson in uh, UK. This is the... I'm the only true patriot. Everybody else is against the values of the country. 
and if not me, the country is gone to the dogs. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether I deliver or not. It doesn't matter whether I follow the rules or not. It doesn't matter if your life is improved or not. Heaven forbid it should be anybody other than me. You know, you're going down a black hole. That seems to work, right? At some level, people vote with their hearts, not with their heads. And at some other level, it's very hard to blame politicians uh, in total, right? Uh, whenever I go, I say, uh, politicians come from society. We are elected. It's not as if, uh, you know, there was a military coup or we got imported from some other country. So, you know, uh, if politicians don't show well, it's because society has deep flaws and that reflects in the politicians. But, uh, but I think... What I said to my leader back in, I'll just give you three statistical points, or three points in time. Back in 2019, uh, after the election and before the counting, I told my leader, my assessment is we'll win this election with 8 or 9% vote margin. If we do that, uh, we'll get 80-85% of the seats because we know what happened. We lost by 1% in 2016 and that translated to two-thirds, one-third like, you know, outcome in seats because of the first-past-the-post system. And if we don't do that, that means that our opponents will have succeeded in turning this election into a referendum of our alleged character because they don't have anything to show in terms of outcome. So if people vote based on is their life better or not and are the schemes good or not and are they getting benefits or not and are their children getting jobs or not, We'll easily win, no problem, because they, they've been in power now for seven years. They, have, uh, they can't blame it on us. If we don't win by 8%, I'm, I'm not even saying that we lose. I'm saying if we don't get a minimum of 8%, that means that the opponents have changed the election to be about us and our character and our lack of fit or whatever, this kind of othering, you know, what about to in the end, the results came 22.6% uh, in our favor. So that is that I had overestimated their vote by about 7% and under, underestimated our vote by about 7%. So 8 plus 7 plus 7 was like 22.6%. Within like 36 hours, I did the analysis. I went and told my leader, I said, if you've got less than 8%, I told you the selection would have been about us and not them. Now I'm telling you the selection was only about them. We were the only alternative. But the vote was against them. The people were angry. The people wanted them gone. And that's basically what happened. This vote was only about that. Now, right after the election, uh, we started preparing for 21. I said, listen, I'm sanguine. We are going to win 21. There's no way we can blow, sitting in opposition, both here and in Delhi, we cannot blow a 22.6% lead in two years. So we're going to win 21. My concern is with what margin and how are we going to govern? We better start setting up all the governance because these guys are going to dig a huge hole and leave us in this hole before we come to uh, power. Right? Uh, fast forward 2021, we won by only about 7 or 8%. We then win, you know, after all the things that happened after 19 and, you know, the economy went south, COVID, a uh, lot of anti- Tamil people's uh, sentiment, things like CAA and, you know, um, uh, other intrusions into our right national education policy. And we still only won by 8%. So the issues became very much more local and not about uh, kind of uh, character. Right? It became more about outcome because it was 
one rebellion party against another entity now we are back at that situation where you know what i say to my leader is that the real opportunity we have is i'm not worried about 24 i'm very sanguine we will win if not 40 then 39 of the 48 pcs in 24 i'll give you in writing in my state no problem but that doesn't mean anything there are 540 seats we we could win all the southern states and end up being a minority so really for us i said the key is that we should elevate this debate to the national level and we should say that you can have a government that actually can perform can provide jobs can improve the quality of your life can get you greater nutrition can uh, you know be compassionate considerate you don't have to just worry about voting from your heart about okay my life is not good but at least they are fighting pakistan you know you know it doesn't have to be about those things it can be about i want my children to have a better life than me and there is a hope because what happens is that when you lose hope and you know, people are very smart if you are just another con man they say i mean one crook or another crook what does it matter the words change the outcome is the same so you have to deliver outcomes and then you have to make this statement that says you too should expect such good outcome that your 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 vote should not be just about uh, you know uh, if not x then who or you know the the other uh, the non devil is better than the unknown devil you know this kind of thing you have to change the debate so you know dravidian or not i have uh, you know bias so i'm not going to say but i'm saying this notion of vote with hope rather than vote out of frustration or fear that debate i think uh, certainly we are keen that that should go to the national level uh, rather than uh, the other so. thank you sir uh, there are a lot of people want to ask questions but i'm i'm seeing the time and we need five minutes call with you so i'll ask a question which is coming from somewhere else in the room but it is a powerful question so as at indian school of democracy we always say we want to redefine politics we want to reclaim the word politics I want to ask you, as someone who's lived in a family of uh, people who've served India through politics, that what in your lifetime do you want to start, stop, and continue as far as politics in India is concerned? I don't want to sound defeatist, but at some fundamental level, we play the cards we're dealt. We don't get to pick where we're born, uh, kind of what opportunities are presented at a young. After that, you can make your own life. You know, there are people. Yeah, the mark of a good society should be lots of social mobility in both directions. Right? Then uh, that's so. There's no question about that. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, I'm playing the cards I was dealt. Uh, I I chose a particular strategy. I knew I would have to come back, and uh, I tried to pull it off as long as possible. And in some sense, uh, I was just talking to my mother. We flew we flew up together. and i said if i look back at my life there are many points where i could have taken different decisions where either in money or in ceo status or you know some other ways i could have been a lot further than i am now for the talent and the work ethic and whatever education i had but in some other ways i think that almost everything i did in my life adds some strength for me to perform the job i'm doing now uh which is a very unique uh kind of path in life and everybody's different but 
uh, in the 34 ministers, at least in Tamil Nadu today, I say that is a relatively unique path to come and sit here. And as I was saying, very few finance ministers have made reading files. That's a very powerful post. You can effectively uh, not just set policy but legislate with your pen because you just don't pass the file and then it just stops. So, in that sense, um, I would like to think that the kind of, uh, you know, very rare outcome of a guy like me sitting in a seat like this with, uh, by the grace of my chief minister who decide, uh, decides all these posts. Incidentally, I didn't ask for this job. Or I didn't even ask for finance, let alone HR and planning and all that. Um, I asked for the temple's portfolio for the, uh, for the HRC because of my family place. Um, would be that, uh, as I used to say when I was a consultant, that something looks different by the time I'm done, right? And uh, and I just was at some other seminar with some old friends at the uh, the TIE, the entrepreneurs thing. And I said I, I would measure success kind of from the bottom up. If the balance sheet and the numbers and the ratios and all look better, then that's kind of the first level of success. That's not that hard to do. I've you know I've managed a lot bigger by scale. Uh, uh, systems than this. Um, the second level is that we have put in platforms, we have put in systems, we have put in checks and balances, uh, new audit modality and new technology uh, interconnect. Something that makes the system function better independent of which human being sits in the seat. That's kind of the next level of proof. Uh, the third level above that is to change the culture, is to change the kind of mindset and the way people look at their jobs and, and how they define success or progress. Uh, at least in the departments that I run, uh, from my officers down to uh, the new recruits. And then because I'm the HR minister, also for the rest of the government uh, uh, employment. And then finally, I say at the end, it all comes down to people. You know, so if I look at my career in financial services, the thing that gives me the greatest joy, I mean, I made some money, I made some changes and all that. That's great. But uh, the people who I interviewed, selected, brought in from campuses, came to work in my teams or, you know, in my uh, businesses, and then are doing very well in life today in different places. They are setting the tone, changing the culture, uh, carving new paths. That gives me the greatest satisfaction because we have, we have created a kind of perpetual machine. It's not just about me. It's about them and then the people they matter and they matter also. So I think in the end, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, you have been a leader where you have created people like you. Uh, with the value system because they believe in it, not because you, you know, paid them or you drilled it to them or you beat it to them. And then you can really take the satisfaction that this change will persist and continue after your time. So I think that's how I see it. And that's in the party. It's in the government. Uh, it's in the IT wing that I run. It's in the engagement with society. So we also started something called the Trividian Professionals Forum where we bring in a lot of specialists from around the world. Like uh, tomorrow we have a session or the day after with Eric Solheim 
uh, and some other international specialists on climate change. Last week we had H.A. Tamilkaran, the famous Turkish uh, celebrated author. Uh, we had people from South Africa, from Nigeria, from Kenya, uh, from Australia. So we are bringing this kind of global, um, you know, approach to very local problems because we all have the same, you know, as, uh, as I've said in other places. Though cultures vary so much, human values are essentially the same. We all, you know, compassion, uh, family, uh, kind of, uh, you know, a more equitable society. So I think that's, uh, that's the way I would look at it. I mean, different people have different worlds in life, so I'm not sure that's representative of uh, anybody else. And that's the way I, I would think about it.